Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am here at the AI conference in San Francisco, and I'm here with James Gusha. And James is the U.S. Chief Data Scientist with Deloitte Consulting. And he's going to be speaking later today, actually, on a topic that you've heard me allude to here on the podcast a number of times, human factors in artificial intelligence. And so I'm really looking forward to diving into this conversation with you, James. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background? You want to hear my checkered past? I, I want to hear your checkered past. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, in fact, I saw in your bio that you've got a PhD in the philosophy of science. Yeah, I know it's a cliche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have a PhD in philosophy from the University of Chicago. I'm a very intellectually curious person. Actually, when I, when, I, when I entered philosophy, what I thought I was going to study was artificial intelligence. Really? Yeah, I'm, I'm a very old person. So this is, this is back in the early 90s. And back then, artificial intelligence was, was you know, talked about. You know, a lot of people are connectionists and Jerry Fodor and, and so on and so uh -huh. on. And I almost went to the University of Pittsburgh, which had a lot of types with Carnegie Mellon University. And there's, a very strong, there's like one of the strongest philosophy of science programs in the country is at Pitt, okay. right down the street from CMU. And I really thought, I'm going to do artificial intelligence. Long story, I changed my mind. I went to the University of Chicago and I got a, a PhD in philosophy. But I focused more in philosophy of physics and especially the way statistics is, is used in physics. Okay. This is all by way of saying I studied pre-unemployment. <laughs> <laughs> I always joke that philosophy is the Greek word that means pre-unemployment. <laughs> so, it, you know, I did. It was, it was wonderful. It was some of the best years of my life. I loved Chicago. I loved the University of Chicago. I loved what I studied. It was fabulous. But I needed a way to make a living. Mm -hmm. And this is back in the early, early 2000s, late 90s. I was, you know, thinking through the various options. I thought, well, I'm a humanities guy. I could go to law school. Ex, you know, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm, I'm doing kind of scientific stuff. I could go to Wall Street, right? I could do the, the whole options thing, yep. right? Which was very sexy back then. I didn't think I had, it would culturally work for me. I just, mm -hmm. I, I just didn't think. I, I actually landed a job. I went out for the interview. I just didn't think I'd enjoy it. So I didn't yep. do it. So I went, I went for the fame and fortune and glamour of becoming an actuary. Okay. And I didn't know what that meant back then, <laughs> but I assumed that actuarial science meant data science, and it didn't, but now it kind of mm -hmm. does. And, and there's a weird way in which actuaries were the original data scientists. Interesting. There's a weird way in which my first data science program or uh, project, which I did at the Allstate Research Center in Menlo Park, California, mm -hmm. there's a weird way in which that was actually artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. I didn't think of it at the time, but I basically, you know, credit scores, in a, you could think of credit scores as sort of an early example of AI in the sense that Chris Hammond from Narrative Science in Northwestern talks about, which mm -hmm. is that it's not so much AI from focusing on it from a, like, through a technical lens, mm -hmm. but functionally it's AI. Because we used to have this whole profession called bank loan officers. Mm -hmm. And that was like a lot of people. That was their job, was bank loan officers. And it turns out that went out the window when we use algorithms to make, loan, to make lending decisions. Right. And I can get into this. There are, there are a lot of reasons why that makes a lot of sense. Some of it is on the data side. And some of it is on the human cognition side. So a lot of reasons why what aspect of this makes a lot of sense? Well, there's a lot of reasons why, there's a lot of reasons why and that was an early case where algorithms outperformed human judgment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and the use of algorithms kind of like, you know, kind of like shrunk a certain part of the workforce, mm -hmm. right? And we, so is this contested? Like that feels intuitively obvious to me that, you know, this is a fundamentally database decision. And if you can yeah. accurately characterize yeah. the you know, a person situation, yeah. you know, in data, which we are able to do now, then algorithms are going to do a pretty good job of this over, you know, golf 
in relationships and some of the things that we think of as the Absolutely. past lives of the loan officer. Absolutely. And I would say yes, but. And I, I think that's okay. exactly, I think this kind of gets Well, yes, but is always the interesting part. Right? Absolutely. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, this, and this is sort of what, it kind of gets at one aspect of what I'm going to be talking about in my talk this afternoon, which is that unaided judgment is notoriously unreliable right. when it comes to making judgments and decisions. And, you know, if, 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 if the listeners have read things like Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast uh-huh. and Slow, or Nudge by Thaler and Sunstein, you know, or Kluge by Gary Marcus, the cognitive scientist, we realized that, you know, our brains evolved, they, they were optimized by evolution for a certain kind of environment, mm-hmm. you know, outrunning predators in the savannah or whatever it was. I'm also thinking predictably irrational by Daniel. Ariely, that's yeah. another popularization of this whole thing, exactly. But, you know, the, 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 real, the real pop classic, in my opinion, is Thinking Fast and Slow by yeah. Kahneman. That's, that's just, that should be on every machine learner's shelf, in my yeah. opinion. This is kind of like the complement to machine learning, in my opinion. So, yeah, I mean... Those same sort of mental heuristics that serve us well in kind of everyday life, mm-hmm. they don't serve us so well when we put on a suit and sit around a boardroom and try to decide, should I you know, acquire this company? Should I admit right. the student to university? How should I treat this patient? Does this person get the loan or not? Sure. There can be all sorts of biases creeping in. Right. Okay, and, and, the, and this is the theme of predictably irrational and thinking fast and slow. Yeah. So it, you know, Kahneman talks about, he calls them the miracles and the flaws of unaided judgment, that's a paraphrase. The miracle is that most of the decisions we make in day-to-day life are what he would call thinking fast. You know, just like, you know, effortless, they come automatically. We kind of tell a story and the story kind of works. Uh But, you know, in these kind of mission critical cases where it's more like, you know, know, is this person gonna, you know, commit a crime? Or is this person gonna pay back the loan? Or is this person gonna crash his car? Or does this person have the disease? Not so well, We, we really need help from algorithms. But that's kind of like one, one half of the story. I think another one of the topics that's really, that, that we've all known about for decades, but it's really becoming, it's coming to the fore, is the need to kind of make sure we reflect societal values in these algorithms at Absolutely. the same time. So when I was at Allstate doing this, it's kind of an interesting story. I, I wasn't building a credit scoring algorithm for Allstate because they were underwriting loans. It's because they're selling insurance contracts. It turns out the credit is hugely predictive of who's going to crash their car. Or have like a water homeowner's claim, something like that. And we can get into that. It's a very interesting okay. story about like why is the data so predictive sure. in that way. But we're also very interested in the legal doctrine of disparate impact. So even if we didn't put like a protected class in the algorithm, it, there could be an unintended consequence. You right. know, where the algorithm could have like systematically different scores for different groups of people, like right. by income or whatever it is. Right or urban rule or race or gender or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. We don't want that, right? right? And it's like you know, some, you know and, and it's very interesting because, like, you know, these same early conversations are now reflected on a larger scale in the world of AI, right? But early on, you know, I'd get into these conversations with other quants. You know, back then there were actuaries and in, 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 back then we called it machine learning to answer your question, right? Or data, right. data mining. That's what we called it back then. KDD was around back then, so we called it data mining. But, you know, the actuaries would say, well, this is just ridiculous. I mean, we just want to come up with the actuarially fair price. Everybody should just, like, be charged insurance that reflects their, their, their risk. Right. But that might be a limited perspective. There might, there might be other perspectives that legitimately should constrain models. Mm-hmm. So what, what, is the, you know, what is the way to kind of optimize models? Is it, is it, you know, is it kind of a metric of we're going to, like, you know, make this prediction with the greatest out-of-sample accuracy? Or is it subject to this, that, and the other constraint? Mm-hmm. And some of those constraints are societal in nature. Some of those constraints are what we were calling human factors in nature. Mm-hmm. So there are some cases where maybe it's a really complex risk. Maybe, it's, maybe I'm trying to underwrite a very complex loan or a very complex insurance contract mm-hmm. or a very complex medical diagnosis or, or a judge making a parole decision. We don't necessarily want to just simply turn that over to a machine. Right. 
right? We don't just want to automate it away and take humans out of the loop, but you know, rather what we want to do is we want to kind of take the best of both worlds and say, well, the machines are good in one way. You know, mm-hmm. they can weigh together four hundred factors, you know, better than we can weigh together four. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, do it the same way before lunch and after lunch versus after yeah. lunch, which we don't do. But at the same time, they don't have common sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas humans have common sense. They understand ethics. They understand the strategic goals of the organization. They understand, you know, you know, societal values, legal constraints, whatever it is. HR, you know, uh, public relations, whatever it is. And so figuring out how to marry the best of both worlds, that's yeah. part of what I mean by design. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It, it, you know, it's like one analogy I've made for a long time is... The, yeah, these, these algorithms do replace humans to certain tasks. I mean, so I always talk about credit scores like an early example of artificial intelligence. For some, for some types of, of loans or risks or, 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 or medical diagnosis or whatever, you can just kind of like turn the algorithm on and it'll make a smart decision. Right. And, and it might be wrong part of the time, but you know, maybe, maybe the losses are acceptable for whatever reason. Yeah. In other cases, you just can't do that. And so it's more like there's this art to somehow blending the machine indication with the human judgment. And that's always fascinated me. Mm-hmm. That's been more the late motif of my work at Deloitte since leaving Allstate. You know, at Allstate, we were doing a lot of, you know, big data, personal insurance. Allstate's the second or third largest mm-hmm. insurance carrier in the country. So they had all this big data. And you could do a lot of this kind of like, well, we'll just have a, you know, this algorithm. It'll spit out a price. Boom, there's your price. It's automation. But... When I joined Deloitte, there's a lot more work for smaller, medium-sized companies or organizations that want to use data to make more complex decisions. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of blending algorithmic indications with human judgment became much more of an issue. Mm-hmm. I only came to appreciate this gradually as I was working at Deloitte. Cause I, start, yeah. I started off as a pure quant. I, just, I was just <laughs> interested in the math, and I still am. I love it. Yeah. So that's the geeky side of me. But there's also this kind of side where like, I'm just fascinated by the way it's used in organizations. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just interested in like you, you need organizational buy-in. You need to reflect domain knowledge and institutional knowledge in the data and the design of the algorithm. Mm-hmm. You need to think up front about how is the algorithm going to be used in the organization, who's going to be using it, who are our stakeholders. And if you get all those things wrong, and if you don't plan for them up front, I won't guarantee it, but I will bet money you'll get a negative ROI on your, on your analytics project. So that's why I've become obsessed by this. And I think the exact same issues arise in now, now that we're in the age of AI. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that struck me as interesting in hearing you tell the story about the work you did at Allstate in particular was it sounded like you were very aware at that time about, you know, issues that, you know, I think of in many ways as like only now kind of finding contemporary voice. You're right. Right. So, you know, bias and algorithmic bias. I know. It's fascinating. Last night, you know, just last night, Pedro Domingos, oh, yeah. like, tweeted, you know, true fact, you know, algorithms cannot discriminate. And so I replied, well, you know, how do we, de- how do we define, you know, dis- how do we define algorithms? What are we talking about here? Exactly, right? well, yeah. And so, yeah. you know, in that, in that lens, you know, it's like, this is the new issue. Like, we're just gearing up to fight this fight. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like you were grappling with this way back when. Right. And, and not just... Not just thinking about it, but the the impression I'm getting from the way you described it was that the organization had a consciousness around it. And Absolutely. It's t- talk more about this. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it, it completely is. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about pro-social uses of big data. I have kind of like a you know a little mantra on that. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, 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 this is one of those things where, you know, I mean, Ben Franklin had this idea of doing well by doing good. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't want to make any grand claims, you know, for my, for my employers or anything like that. But, like, it's, it's in an organization's 
enlightened self-interest to think in the long term. Mm-hmm. Maybe in the short term, you know, you, you can you can like just throw out whatever model you want, but you know, they're smart enough to realize that you know, if there are these unintended consequences, mm-hmm. it'll come back to the bite them later on. It doesn't make any sense, right? So since all organizations are self-interested, does that mean that some are more enlightened than others? <laughs> I think I think so, I think some are more enlightened. I mean, it, it, it's clear. I mean, you know, something else we could just be a tangent. We could talk about groupthink. I mean, they're, 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 you know, think about all the, all the organizations, you know, or you know, both private and public sector organizations that make catastrophic, or governments mm-hmm. that make catastrophically bad decisions you know, when even, this is another interesting thing, like, our organizations, people will know, there are people that comprise organizations, right? right? Organizations can act as if they're rational or not, or they're enlightened or not. And sometimes what happens is you'll meet a lot of very well-meaning people in an organization, but they kind of have to self-censor. And even if they think there's something sure. that's not quite right, they have to kind of either self-censor, or maybe they just get into this habit of believing their elders or their superiors because drinking of... Drinking the Kool-Aid. Drinking the Kool-Aid, yeah. I mean, this is called groupthink, right? right? You know, it's like the opposite of collective intelligence, which is mm-hmm. what data science should be all about. No, so, I mean, so, that, that was a tangent, but I mean, I, I think... This I'm, recognition, is it... Was it purely internal, or was it driven by regulatory frameworks yeah. or fear of? Yeah, I don't. I don't, like, like, I don't want to be do grandiose. For... I do have a sense. I don't want to be grandiose. Insurance yeah. is very heavily regulated. It's sure. regulated at the state level. In fact, so it's not just one agency; it's fifty agencies in the United mm-hmm. States. And it's actually it's a rare case where it's actually more heavily regulated in the U.S. than it is in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so they absolutely, in part, in fact, part of the reason why my my employer wanted to build, I hope, I hope the statute of limitations applies here. I think that one of the reasons they wanted to build this thing in house is that. They, they actually want to have control over the details of the model. They want to be able to make sure that, no, we're getting this exactly right. You know, it, maybe, it's, maybe you can't use medical bankruptcies in this state. Well, right. we're not. See, we can prove it because this is our algorithm. Whereas if we bought some black box off the shelf thing, we're not sure we've reflected that regulation. In the thing, and, and of course, regulations are an attempt to reflect societal values, right? right? So the ultimate thing is you want to reflect societal values in the algorithms, mm-hmm. and regulations are kind of a halfway house. This is, I'm speaking philosophically from my yeah. own perspective, but I think that's what's going on here. Right. And so that's the game, right? I mean, the, the, the companies want to make sure they're they're using algorithms to, you know, run their their processes more efficiently. In the case of Allstate, you know, we we want to, you know, it's it's the oldest game in the book. You you want to be able to come up with a more accurate price for a risk. You know, the, the logic of credit scoring and insurance is, you know, we all know that 16-year-old male motorcycles are bad drivers, right? Or probably risky, I should say riskier than average drivers, perhaps, right? Riskier than perhaps a, a middle-aged female station wagon driver, perhaps. But if you can find the 16-year-old male motorcycle driver who's also president of the chess club, subscribes to Martha Stewart Living Magazine, and has a good credit score, he's probably a good risk. And if you can collect all those good credit score 16-year-old male motorcycle drivers, you can kind of give them a lower rate because they're actually better risk than might appear on the surface. And that means the other com- companies who don't have credit score have to charge more for the 16-year-old male motorcycle drivers. And it's this kind of adverse selection spiral. So that's, that's, the, that's the kind of like economic logic for, mm-hmm. for doing... And this is why insurance is a very early adopter of big data, data mining, analytics. Mm-hmm. But that's subject to a constraint. I mean, if you just did kind of a crowdsourcing competition you know, come up with the best segmentation thing, right? right? There'll be, you know, unless you've prepared the data yourself and unless you're very careful about auditing that algorithm, you know, you're not sure that that reflects these regulatory constraints, which, right. you know, are reflections of societal values or not. Right. So, you know, and I'm not saying crowdsourcing would be bad in this context. I'm just saying you have to kind of take that into account. You're optimizing more than one thing, not just out of sample accuracy, but these other things too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, I, and I think there are a lot of companies that it's, it's not just regulation. They just want to do the right thing. You know, I mean, like, 
actually Richard Thaler, who's one of my heroes, he's a, the father of behavioral economics at the University of Chicago Business School. He tweeted about, I won't, I won't say which company it is, but it was an airline that kind of fixed its fees for flights out of Miami at a, at a fairly low rate yeah. to help people escape the storm. Right. Even though they could have done surge pricing, right. Thaler would say that, that, that just kind of goes against the grain of human psychology. You know, we have these things that Adam Smith called moral sentiments, mm-hmm. you know, which we call ethics now. It's like that just doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. So even though from a, from a technical, classical economics, homo economicus, rational, profit-maximizing perspective, they should charge $4,000 for a flight to Atlanta from mm-hmm. Miami. But they didn't. Mm-hmm. And Thaler's saying it's because it's they're thinking in the longer term. Mm-hmm. And in that case, it wasn't regulation. It was just like we're playing the long game. Mm-hmm. And there are other companies that did jack up the prices. Right. And that's really interesting, actually, because they, 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 it may be the case. I don't know. I'm speculating. But it, that may have been unbridled algorithmic thinking. It may be that like a pricing algorithm, you know, mm-hmm. It's quite possible right. that some of these competitors did do surge pricing because it's kind of like the algorithm is just kind of calling the shots. No, oh, and that's no, what the algorithms usually do. Absolutely. Right. And so this is like a really nice case where it's, it's, it's sort of like parallel, I think, to the insurance case, except it wasn't due to regulation. Mm-hmm. It was just more due to like customer lifetime value. You don't right. want to alienate people. Right. People right. just are going to remember things like this. So, right. so it's like our, our, our customers but are... But does the algorithm, the algorithm would have to have a pretty long life cycle to pick up on that customer lifetime value yeah. piece. That's like, ex- well, that's, and that's, so kind, of, that's kind of the point. That yeah. suggests that you know, it's more likely than not there was human in the loop there. Precisely. No, that, that, that's exactly the point. Yeah, it's, it's like, you know, we can kind of speculate about singularities. We can kind of speculate and have, you know, fun conversations about when are we going to reach artificial general, general intelligence. We have like a robot that can like use common sense and price it, you know, both to optimize things, but also that's okay, but that's not happening anytime soon, right? Yeah. We, we've got, these are machine learning algorithms. They're essentially like statistical models, you know, on steroids, right. basically. Right. Deep learning models are like logistic regression models on steroids right. that, that create their own features, Right. right. So that's, that's what we got, and that's great. It's really, really powerful. But, but as you're suggesting, I think what it implies is that we want to have humans that have common sense reasoning mm-hmm. to keep the models in check. Yeah. And so that, what that implies is that the people that, and I'm going to quote an economist here named John Kay, that the people that understand yeah, the... Don't do the, too much of that on this podcast, though. Well, I really... I'm just joking. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Quoting economists? Yeah, I know. It's a big turnoff. No, John, John Kay was my favorite. I think he's retired, but he was my favorite columnist in the Financial Times. Okay. Uh, he used to be an Oxford economist, I think, or London Business School or something. But uh, he was asked 10 years ago to diagnose, somebody asked him the question in the, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, mm-hmm. why is it that all these models built by Harvard, Cambridge, MIT, quants failed so badly? Yeah. And Kay was so direct and to the point, so elegant. He said, it, the problem was that the people that understood the math didn't understand the world, and the people that understood the world didn't understand the math. Mm. And, you know, so I, th- I think that that's, that, you know, that's, that's another kind of case of where we need to kind of like, where I, I think, I think, I can't remember who said this, but I, I heard a very nice quote the other day that a really good data scientist needs a kind of communication and empathy ability to be able to kind of talk to the people that understand the world, not just to reflect their knowledge in the data, but also to reflect just the kind of like strategic Values. Goals, the, the societal values, the long term, we don't want to alienate our customers in the long term, all those kinds of things. Right. You know what I mean? So, Interesting. Yeah. So this is all kind of background for your talk. Like, how did you, how did you organize your talk? Did you have a list of human factors that uh, an organization needs to consider? Or Oh, no, it's nothing, nothing that cut and dried. Honestly, <laughs> it's, 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 nothing about me is like that. My background is philosophy, right? So I always kind of go back to first principles. And I'm, uh-huh. just, I'm just kind of, I'm just really just thinking about 
what are algorithms good at? You know, why do we have algorithms? What, what, you know, what are their limitations? What are ways of overcoming those limitations? Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I, you know, I do have, I do have some ideas for, you know, where we kind of need to, you know, inject sort of like extra statistical or extra machine learning or extra computer, you know, beyond computer science principles into, mm-hmm. into what we're doing. And so these are all examples that I've been giving. So the way I structure the talk, should we get into that now? Or, yeah, sure. Yeah, the way I structure the talk is, actually, I'm, I'm quoting someone I know a little bit, Chris Hammond at, at Northwestern University in mm-hmm. Narrative Science. He's someone I greatly admire, actually. In fact, he, he and I overlapped at the University of Chicago. I was, okay. I was getting my PhD in philosophy when he was a computer science professor there. So he's now at Northwestern doing really innovative stuff, and he's also the chief science, scientist or chief science officer of Narrative Science, the natural okay. language generation company. I mean, he has this really nice way of thinking about AI. We shouldn't think of AI in terms of the underlying technology. We should really think about AI in terms of like, what is its function? What are we trying to achieve here? Oh, well, we're trying to automate this process. We're trying, humans are really bad at this. They fall asleep at the wheel. So let's have AI that drives for them. Or let's just have AI that kind of recognizes their face when they're getting drowsy, like the Affectiva software, right? Like Mm -hmm. Rana Mm El-Kalubi. And then kind of nudges them. Maybe maybe turns the radio up or something. Right. Or gives them a punch. (laughs) Just wait, whatever it is, some nudge, right? A nudge or a punch. That's a goal. And so some of these things can be done through robotic process automation, Mm -hmm. which is not even data-driven. It's just kind of like logic. Some can be done through deep learning. So yeah, sure. If you upload my photograph into Facebook, it'll say that's a picture of George Clooney, which is a pretty good guess, right? Mm-hmm. Joke. So that, that's automation. Mm-hmm. And, but there's also the augmentation side of things, which I want to talk about too. So that, that's, that's kind of like the large structure. Start off with Chris Hammond, talk about the fact that when we talk about AI, it should be kind of like a functional thing, not a tech first thing. So it's not just about deep learning. It's not just about machine learning. It's really like, it's really building computer algorithms that do things that were they to be done by humans, they'd be considered intelligent. Right. That's sort of like, right. that's kind of Chris Hammond channeling John McCarthy at Dartmouth in 1956. Mm-hmm. He's one of the founding fathers of AI. Mm-hmm. Very smart, kind of like operational definition. Sure. And, I, and I like it, because it just, it, it, for, as a consultant, because I'm, I'm really a consultant first. Right. I'm a consultant who happens to be a data scientist rather than a data scientist who happens to work in a consulting firm. Yeah. And so as someone who really believes that he's a consultant, I think that's just a, a really great way of thinking about it. Because I've seen you know, the hype cycles come and go, but over and over and over again, I see that the, the organizations and the, the leaders who kind of take a tech first view of the stuff, it tends to get a lot of attention and buzz early on, but it doesn't really produce the value downstream. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you start with kind of like a problem centric view first and kind of reverse engineer from there, yeah. well, what do I want? You're more likely to succeed and it's likely to be a more efficient, elegant and frankly cost effective solution with less risk. And in many cases, a lot simpler than a lot the thing simpler. that you would have done if you were just following shiny object. Yes. No, exactly. In fact, you know, again, I'm old, so I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do some more old quotes. One of my, someone who's sort of an informal mentor of mine at the University of Chicago was a very prominent Bayesian econometrician named Arnold Zellner. And he, he had a concept called sophisticated simplicity. Being sophisticatedly simple, the idea is that you start off with a simple model. And if it works, done. If it doesn't work, you, you just gradually add structure right. until it does work, and then you stop. Yeah. You don't start with the most complicated things that makes you seem like most smart or impressive or macho, right. right? And I think that an analogous comment can be made about artificial intelligence. And Chris was kind of making this point the other day in, in his tutorial, which I, which I just loved. You know, he said, if, if all you need is robotic process automation, 
do it. <laughs> what's, what's the downside? Just do it. You don't even need big data for that. You just need like, you know, smart consultants and programmers and, and you'll just save a lot of money and there's very little downside risk. Let me ask you about, do you do a lot of, well, you've brought up RPA a couple of times. Oh, yeah. I'm just, it's, it's, it's part of the family of AI. Yeah. I'm just curious your perspective on this. I'll jump to the question. Sure. Right. The question is, you know, can you provide for me specific proof point examples where, you know, people are doing RPA that's, you know, that suggests that RPA is more than a rebranding of BPM? You know, I don't, I, I probably shouldn't comment too much on that because I'm not like one of our RPA experts. Okay. And may, maybe it is. It's just like, this is, this is an idea that's been around for a long time. It just makes eminent common sense. I don't, I don't really care what you call it so much, but just the idea of taking processes where just somebody is doing something that's just like routine and rote, boring spade work. And if you can just get a macro or a script to yeah. do that, why not do it? That, that's kind of like analogous to Zellner's sophisticated simplicity. Like in a statistics thing, if, if just like looking at the difference of two means is all you need, you right. know, looking doing bootstrapping, do it. Yeah. In a business context, if all you need is to automate something that's really, really rote and simple and spade work, yeah. do it. You don't need machine learning for that. Right. You know, right. and, 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 you know, in, in kind of going up, up that kind of food chain of, of, of complexity, you just kind of want to start. I guess what I was getting at is you wanted to start with the problem and kind of back into the either technology or the data science or the machine learning, whatever it is that will solve the problem. And so you mentioned automation and augmentation. augmentation. Augmentation, what does that mean for you and how are you seeing folks gain value there? I've seen, I've seen folks gain value from augmentation in my whole career. I've been at Deloitte since 2001 and it's been one of the most common themes of what I've been doing. We've, we've built algorithms that will automate things, but very often, you know, you know, we don't always work. By augmentation, are we talking about augmenting human Correct. intelligence? Okay, that's as opposed exactly to right. data augmentation or some other flavor. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm talking about augmenting human intelligence. And, and that, that vocabulary is somewhat new to me. I haven't always described what we do in those terms, but I like the, I like the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, we, you know, very often, Early on, when we do our, our projects, you know, like for example, suppose we're working for, again, let's say we're working for an insurance company, but say it's a commercial insurance company. So instead of selling auto insurance, they say, for example, they sell workers' comp insurance. Now, there are fewer businesses to insure in the world than there are cars. Mm-hmm. And businesses have fewer factors in common than cars do. Some are florists, some are hipster coffee shops, some are hospitals, right? And so you have, that means you have fewer rows in your database and you have fewer columns. Right. And you're, but you're trying to do something similar to what you know, my, my first job was, which is you're trying to come up with like a better price for the risk or, or an underwriting decision. Should I sell this, this person insurance or not? Should I sell your hipster coffee shop insurance or not? Right. And th- that's a case where like what we found just empirically, you know, through our data and through, through you know, blind test validation is that it would work pretty well in certain cases. And that was an empirical question. And it was, it was partly empirical, partly strategic. You know, it's like, we'd have to work with the client to figure out what is the cutoff here where we're gonna like straight through process these decisions. Whereas these other decisions, we're just gonna simply give it to an underwriter. Maybe we'll like rank order some things. We'll try to explain to the under- underwriter what's going on here. Yeah. You know, we'll try to like train the underwriter ahead of time to understand the premises of the models. And you know, if, and if we don't do that, it's just not gonna work. So it's like a very simple example of, you know, what we were calling human factors earlier. I don't know if human factors is quite the right word, but it's some, some kind of like a, either a human-centered or an organization-centered design. We, you know, I, I began to use the analogy, you know, Mr. Underwriter or Ms. Underwriter, just, you know, imagine that your eyes are myopic and so you go to the doctor and you get a pair of glasses. You can see better. Well, you know, Daniel Kahneman 
and Danny Ariely and all these behavioral economists and psychologists teach us that our brains are myopic. Our brains have these you know, bound, biased heuristics right. that we use to make decisions. So they, they, we have blurry mental vision. And so in, in, these, in these augmentation cases, the algorithms are kind of like prostheses. They're kind of like eyeglasses for the mind's eye. They just help debias our cognition. Yeah. So kind of getting that equation right was sort of the art to our science. And what fascinates me about it is that statistics is part of it, but not all of it. You know, so in, in business, we've always called this kind of change management. So this yeah. kind of goes into the change management rubric. Frankly, right now it's an art, but I, I, but I like to think that it can become more of a science. Mm-hmm. The, the, so I call, I call this the last mile problem. You know, we, we don't stop with an algorithmic output. We stop with a decision. Right. And in the case of automation, the computer makes a decision. Mm-hmm. It's saying, you know, I'm just going to send you this ad for these pair of shoes because I think you like these shoes. Right. The augmentation is more like, you know, I'm going to tell the doctor there's this probability that this person has this rare disease, but it's really the doctor's judgment call. I'm yeah. just gonna, and I'm going to tell the doctor why the algorithm think, thinks this. Maybe I'll use an information retrieval system a la IBM Watson to give some collateral information, but I'm going to give this to the doctor. This is one area where behavioral economics comes back again, is that behavioral economics teaches us that simply giving people information doesn't always result in the optimal decision. It's, it's also the way you present information matters. Right. We've learned this in the last 30 or 40 years. This is the whole basis right. of the book Nudge, which is only 10 years old. Right. So we've really come to appreciate this a lot more. So, the, so behavioral economics is absolutely a, you know, one way of thinking of this, quote, human factors idea or human-centered design idea. You know. So I feel like we've been sort of like muddling through perhaps all these years, and it works, right? It's, yeah. it's, a, we have this kind of, it's more, when I say muddling through, I mean it's more an art than a science. It's, it's something that we've done for a long time. We've gotten better at it over time. We do it with our, with our clients. But I, I'm in, intrigued with the idea that now that AI and machine learning is becoming such a, a business and societal trend, maybe there can be a new science emerging about this idea of human-computer collaboration or human-computer interaction. Mm-hmm. Can I give you one more example? That's sort please, of like, yeah, yeah. This is not, absolutely not a gym example. It's not a Deloitte example, but I, but I find it incredibly thought-provoking. So it's more of a metaphor but, it, but I find it's a very thought-provoking metaphor, and it's a very nice way to think about sort of the future of work, too, you know, people being displaced by algorithms and so on. And forgive me if you've heard this. Have you heard the story about freestyle chess? No, I don't think so. Good. Thank you. <laughs> I, I like when people say no. I only learned it a few years ago myself. I actually read the article, and I forgot it, and then I reread it. So I read an article in 2011 by Gary Kasparov, the, the chess grandmaster. Sure. It was published in the New York Review of Books in 2011. And he was talking about his own experiences being put out of work by IBM Deep Blue. So this is the prequel to Watson, right? You know, it's like there's a, a, a magazine cover, cover called The Brain's Last Stand. You know, yeah. the machine is vanquishing man, right? The chess right. master. Because that's identified with human intelligence. Right. And this is way back in 97. It's like 20 years ago, right? I mean, I, I was like, I just turned 12, I think. Kidding. <laughs> and, but it turned out the story was a lot more interesting than, than that. Kasparov actually invented a new game after he lost to Deep Blue called advanced chess. And advanced chess would be, instead of me playing you in chess, right. it'd be Jim equipped with a laptop playing you equipped with a laptop. Right. And it turns out that the same skills that enabled Kasparov to be good at traditional chess, mm-hmm. he wasn't quite as good at freestyle chess, or, or, or at this advanced chess concept, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's fast forward to the year 2005, and I think a German website had an open game called freestyle chess, which is okay. anybody around the world can enter. It can be, you know, Kasparov playing another grandmaster. It could be Kasparov plus teaming up with a supercomputer playing another grandmaster, teamed up with another supercomputer. It could be anything. Okay. And it turns out there was an upset victory. 
the team that won was two amateur chess players from New Hampshire, these two young guys, hmm. working with three ordinary laptops equipped with three different chess programs. They won freestyle chess. They, wow. they beat the grandmasters and the supercomputers and the grandmasters working with supercomputers. supercomputers. Huh. And Kasparov, when he wrote about this in the New York Review of Books, he said, this is later called Kasparov's Law, it's a weak human plus an ordinary computer plus a better process of working together outperforms the grandmaster or the supercomputer or both plus an inferior process. Interesting. And I, when I'm going to present this this afternoon, I'm going to circle the better process. Right. That's what we need. And, and, and when, I, when I read that for the second time, I'm, I'm, I'm a slow study. You know, when I read this all these years later, I realized, oh my God, that better process of the chess player working with the computer that's just like what we would do in our consulting practice when we right. give like a doctor, an underwriter, an admissions officer, a public sector caseworker, a list of cases saying, here, this will debias your judgment, but it's ultimately up to you. And we're going to help you do this. We're going to train you to do it. We're going to train you to understand the algorithm. We're going to try to train you to understand you know, its premises, its assumptions, the data it's based on, the variables in the model. And that way, if you know that the, the model contains variables 1 through 40, but you know factors 41, 42, and 43, and if you judge those to be really important and the algorithm doesn't know that, then you, you can override the algorithm. Right. And that's okay because you're using your brain. You're not just you know, using Kahneman thinking fast. You're not using biased heuristics. Yeah. You're, making a, you're using metacognition and you're using your intelligence to say, yeah, the computer's saying this, but I've also got this common sense and this other, I know these contextual factors. I'm going to override it and do this other right. thing. And you, I could be wrong, but, but at least it's a principled decision. Yeah. So when, when I talk about freestyle chess, I'm not trying to make the claim that a human computer will always win chess. Sure. That, that's not my point. Sure. The, the point is that it's a very nice metaphor for this idea that the computer can do things that humans aren't good at. Like look through this decision tree of you know, you know, all these possible moves and all the implications of these moves downstream better than a human can. But the human has other you know, kinds of capabilities, right? right? It can kind of, so Kasparov commented when, when, about these two guys who won freestyle chess. He said, their insight into looking deeply at, at what the computers were indicating really enabled them to kind of outperform the grandmasters to an inferior mm -hmm. process. So they, they actually had an insight into how the algorithms worked and developed kind of like an intuitive spidey sense for mm -hmm. when should I trust this recommendation versus that recommendation. So I just find it like a, a very nice metaphor for a real world professional making a mission right. critical judgment. Right. under it's, it's called judgment under uncertainty right. with the help of an algorithm. Yeah, it strikes me that the process in you know, his characterization of this is it's kind of lo a loaded vocabulary that has a bunch of individual things under it, right? There's like user interface, there's, you know, the things that we might traditionally think of as a process, like You're a right. set of steps, there's, you mentioned a bank of experiences to uh, fall back on, on how, you know, how have I been able to rely on the computer's advice historically? Have you done or seen any kind of work to kind of characterize this more more granularly? Yeah, I mean, you mean like you know, like exactly how do you pull off this better process? You mean like what what are the steps involved? Are the principles involved? And so I think ultimately the goal is like as a business, if I, if I can you know if I can pick apart the pieces of what you know process means in this yeah. model that enable human yeah. plus computer to you know, to outperform, you know, expert, then, you know, that kind of provides me a roadmap for, well, first I need to make sure that my data is, you know, displayed in a way that is comprehensible for the computer, right. for example, you know, then I need to make sure that I've got the tools available to interact with, you yeah. know, the systems, et cetera. I'm just, I'm curious whether, you know, how evolved the thinking is there. 
like I said, I, I would like it to be more of a science than it is, but I think what, what ends up happening is that it's, it's, it's a series of, of kind of like, it's what Simon called satisfying. We, we make, a, you know, a, maybe not optimal decisions, yeah. but we, make, we kind of like, you know, look at the business context. Maybe it never will be a science. Maybe it's always going to be like, it'll always be like a devil in the details kind of thing. You know, so like, you know, if, if, it's, a medical, if it's a medical case, then the cases where you let the computer just make an automatic decision versus a human might be different depending on how many doctors there are around. You know, I mean, if you're in a poor country, you know, it might not be optimal to have a doctor working with a computer. But, you know, if, if the village has no doctors at all and you can just, like take a picture of a wound, you know, do deep learning on it, upload it into the cloud and it comes back with like, you don't need stitches versus right. you do need stitches, yeah. that's pretty good. Ideally, we'd have a human in the loop. You know what I mean? But so that it's always going to be like this muddling through kind of thing. Like, you know, it, what, what is the cutoff? You know, it, you know, it, in some cases, like jurisprudence, you know, I, I think Daniel Kahneman wrote about this actually a few years ago. He said the public would be shocked to hear that like an algorithm was making decisions without a judge. I mean, is that even, is that even constitutional? So that might be kind of like just like ground, you know, unavoidable reasons why you always need to have a human in the loop. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, I think that we are kind of gradually getting better at this stuff. I mean, people are coming up with better algorithms for explaining models. Like so, so one of the, I'm probably going to get his name wrong, one of the speakers earlier in the conference, Carlos Guestrin from University Carlos of Carlos Guestrin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he came up with the Lyme algorithm, right, for right. kind of explaining why does a deep learning right. model classify what it classifies. Well, conceptually, and I, I hasten to say conceptually, <laughs> it's much more sophisticated, but, you know, we've always done analogous things with our work, right? I mean, we, 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 would, we would output not just a score saying, you know, the answer is 42, we'd say, well, what does 42 mean? Right. And why does the algorithm think it's 42? Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, so every single score is contextualized with a set of sort of like English language, you know, language. So again, primitive natural language generation. But still, nevertheless, natural language generation. So all these kinds of things we've been doing for a long time are getting refined, you know? So we've got better reason algorithms. We've got natu- Chris Hammond's natural language generation, right? We've got more advanced data visualization. Maybe we're right. going to come up with better apps so that, you know, people... The emotional aspect of it is important. You know, uh, John Whalen was speaking yesterday about the emotional quality of this kind of stuff. And he said, you know, a nice comment he made was that people will choose a personal digital assistant, even if it's less accurate, if it's just more emotionally pleasing to, pleasing to work with. Right. And so even just getting that right is something. And that's something that my, my practice, you know, probably could get a little bit better at. Yeah. You know, so the, the, you know, these are all different aspects of the, of, the, of the human factors, right? So it's like some of it is helping us think better, but there's a, there's a lot of interesting kind of neuroscience around emotions. And I think, you know, in the last 20 years, sort of another, you know, kind of like headline that's kind of new to a lot of people, including me, is that emotions are not kind of like the Mr. Spock versus Captain Kirk thing that we all think of. It's it's not like emotions are sort of like the noise that clouds the the static around rationality. It's more like emotions are sort of part and parcel of rationality. They're fundamental. Yeah, yeah, it's part and parcel. a big part of what thinking fast, That's right. thinking slow. I always mess that up. No, thinking fast and slow, that's exactly right. yeah, yeah. And, and also, like, you know, the, the effective computing stuff that Rana Kalyubi was, was speaking mm-hmm. about, that kind of relates, I think, you know, that, that's effective computing. Well, there's also effective neuroscience. And, like, one of the fi- findings of effective neuroscience is that healthy emotions are important to rational decision-making. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. they're not separate, you know. And so that's an interesting kind of lens through which to look at this, too. You know, and again, these are, yeah. these are, all, these are all developing now. That's why it's such an exciting time to be, be working right. in this field. So I, I think the, the general ideas that... I think savvy people have, have always realized that when it comes to more complex decisions, you don't want to just turn it over to an algorithm. Mm-hmm. Sure, 
we're surrounded by more, more big data now. Sure, our algorithms are getting better. Sure, our computing power is, is getting cheaper and cheaper. So sure, there will be more and more decisions that can be automated. But until we come up with this kind of singularity, which, you know, <laughs> right, whatever, you know, it's, it's not... Separate, not, separate podcast. Not on that horizon anytime soon. Yeah, we're, we're, you know, for a lot of decisions, we're going to need to have kind of humans in the loop. We're going to need to kind of have a science of augmentation, this kind of this freestyle X idea. So freestyle insurance underwriting, freestyle medicine, freestyle jurisprudence, freestyle right. university admissions, right? It's the algorithms helping de-bias the humans, but yeah. the humans kind of keeping the algorithms in check. And yeah. so getting, getting that balance right is, that's what I find fascinating. That's, that's what kind oh, of- that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'll mention, since you mentioned Carlos Gestrin and Rana Al-Koyubi, mm. I'll note for folks that are listening that both of them have been on the podcast oh, before. You have great taste uh, until now. In fact, Carlos- at the very first AI conference in New York, mm-hmm. and Rana at the previous one in New York. This is the third one. Mm-hmm. And so folks can find, the, find those on the website, both great conversations. Beautiful. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. Thank you so much. Jim. Thank you. Real pleasure. Absolutely. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and, of course, for your ongoing feedback and support. For more information on James or any of the other topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 56. And please, please, please remember to send any questions or comments that you have, either for us or our guests, via Twitter, at twimlai or at Sam Charrington or just leave a comment right on the show notes page. For more information about the Halloween social, visit twimlai.com slash Halloween. Tickets are on sale right now, and we do expect to sell out, so get your tickets. To register for Wednesday's meetup, visit twimlai.com slash meetup. Thanks again for listening, and catch you next time.